This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, Alex and I were just... Chatting about a story on the Bloomberg about the pressures on healthcare workers here as we go into a second and third wave here, and it must just be uh, it just the the ongoing cumulative pressures and and the uh, on these healthcare workers is just extraordinary. Our next guest can help us talk about that a little bit in the overall home healthcare services space. Alyssa Rapp is the chief executive officer of Surgical Solutions. She joins us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us. I know you've got your company has over 200 employees on the front lines of this crisis here. Give us a sense of what you're hearing from them. I mean, this is month 10, and it looks like we're going to have a couple, three more difficult months ahead of us. How are they doing? Well, thanks for asking, and thanks for having me back, Paul and Alex. You know, it's been a crazy and wild year for frontline healthcare workers. I was looking uh, this morning at our volume of the the number of surgeries they've supported from November of 2019, 8,000 a month. It then dipped and plummeted to 2,000 in April. And starting in July and August, it was back, and now we're up above 115% of our annual volume from last year because people are rescheduling those procedures that were canceled or trying to get them in before their year-end deductibles are, mm. are refreshed. So what is it, how would I feel or you feel if we had been on that roller coaster ride, exhausted, uh, a little burnt out, motivated by the mission of the work and serving the end patient and anxiously awaiting the vaccine? It's been a heck of a year. And it feels like it's going to be made even worse in some ways. We have this new strain of COVID that was discovered in the UK that hasn't been reported here yet. But by all admissions, like there's no way it can't get here at some point, right? Or it might be here already. What are you hearing about that from your online workers? Yeah, so what I am hearing is that people are cautiously optimistic that the current vaccines will vaccinate against the current strain and those uh, less virulent but more fast-spreading strains or mutations. So they're not as afraid of the mutations. What we're all concerned about for our 250 people in 35 hospitals in nine states is when are they going to get the vaccine? And they're they're in the front line to get it in January, but they're not there yet. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go, Alyssa. I think, you know, in... We all in the euphoria of the last month or so of these uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, you know, a number that I seem to have been the acceptable number out there is maybe 20 million vaccinations by the end of calendar 2020. I think we're nowhere near that. What is your sense of of how this is rolling out uh, in some of the early days here? Great question, Paul. So what we are seeing is that about 20 percent of each hospital's uh, eligible staff is getting vaccinated or has been already. What does that mean? You're an ER worker, you're an ICU worker, or you're a surgeon, you have probably been vaccinated if you are in a major metropolis or a market that has access to the vaccine. If you're the other 80% of the essential workers, you're getting it next. But you Mm -hmm. probably haven't had that first shot yet, by and large. So that's great that we're making progress. What we need is more progress faster. Um, Are you hearing anything about individuals not wanting to take it? in the healthcare profession? It's interesting. And our, our team is, you know, frontline support for minimally invasive surgeries. And we have a roster of vaccines 
and immunizations our team has to get before they go into any hospital. And the hospital's policy about vaccines is what governs ours for our team. And so in these hospitals where it's required of their staff, there's really not been any pushback of when our team is getting it. If anything, it's the contrary. Are we on the list to get it when when our rung of essential worker gets vaccinated? And the answer is yes. I'm sure there will be pushback. But when you are on the front line um, and you are knowing how exposed you've been, I haven't seen it yet with our team. So, Alyssa, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, PPE, uh, that was such Mm -hmm. a big problem uh, in the initial wave back in uh, March and April, and it really underscored kind of the the risk to the supply chain, if you will. Well, here we are, fast forward 10 months later. Where are we in terms of PPP within the healthcare system to deal with these rising numbers? I can can speak to this anecdotally, not nationwide, but anecdotally, we saw a dearth of PPE in all major markets when this first hit, like everybody did. And then those major metropolises, again, New York City, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, stockpiled. And so those markets are now flush with PPE. But where we're seeing a shortage now, uh, eight, nine, ten months later, is in more rural markets and more small regional hospitals. That's where our folks have said they're starting to see a decline. And we have our own corporate stockpile just in case our people need it. We want them armed with the right artillery to go to battle, so to speak. But we've heard the pinch the greatest so far in rural America, not in, in the major metropolis. Just anecdotally also, what area right now is worse off? That I don't know. I, I think that it depends how you define worse, worse off, right? Yeah. I think that the major metropolis are going to see higher numbers by, by definition, but it's all about preparedness and also the rate of positivity. So the first wave in the Q2 hit those dense urban markets the highest, where the smaller markets were not as scathed. And here we are, we saw a big pop in those secondary and tertiary markets in October, November, because that's when it hit that first wave was was really their first wave. And so now it's, I don't want to say calming to a dull roar. The numbers are the numbers, we all see them, but it's, I think people are more prepared. And I'm just hopeful that the vaccine can come in a more widespread manner before there, as you said earlier, a third, fourth and, and fifth wave of this thing. So, Alyssa, just in the next 20 seconds, where are your people mostly deployed? Are they smaller, more rural markets, maybe where they're understaffed? No, actually, we have 40 percent of our team in New York City, and then we also have them in big big markets like Houston, and then, uh, you know, a large number in Kentucky and Louisiana and upstate New York and other places. But no, we sort of see both extremes, the the large urban markets and and the smaller regional ones. Hey, Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate your perspective here on this unfolding story as it moves from, um, you know, just trying to deal with it on a day-to-day basis to therapeutics and vaccines. So uh, we appreciate your thoughts. Alyssa Rapp, Chief Executive Officer, Surgical Solutions, joining us on the phone from Deerfield, uh, Illinois. And again, uh, Alex, interesting, we're going to be seeing how this vaccination rollout plays out over the coming weeks and months, and hopefully uh, it can go smoothly so we can do it as efficiently as possible. Well, we did finally get that fiscal stimulus uh, bill passed and signed, although it was an ugly process over the last several days. You had weird coalitions. On one day, you had the president with uh, the Democrats, and you had the Republicans not with their president, but it all got said and all got done there in the end. Let's get the latest. Let's dig under the hood. We can do that with Laura Davison. Congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. So, Lar, we did get a plan. Talk to us about the stimulus payment. That seems to be the real bone of contention here uh, between all parties involved. 
Yes, so similar to the CARES Act back in March, this bill has another stimulus payment, this time $600 for adults and for children. Uh, Last time it was $1,200 for adults, $500 for children. Uh, But otherwise, the eligibility is is relatively similar. Um, If you make less than $75,000 as an individual, you'll get that full payment. Uh, Twice that, $150,000 for a married couple, you'll get that full amount. And there's a phase out, so, uh, you know, for about $20,000 on top of that. There's a uh, you'll get a, a diminishing amount uh, below that six hundred dollars, uh, th- but this is still very much a live issue. There is a vote planned in the House of Representatives tonight that would increase that amount to two thousand dollars, both for adults and children. Um, unclear um, how it will fare in the House. Uh, however, the the prospect for this passing Congress is is not likely. The Senate uh, is not likely to bring this up, or if, if they were to, it, it would likely not uh, pass that chamber. Is $2,000 on the table for like three weeks from now? <laughs> you know, that is a, a good question. Obviously, there will be a, a change of administration uh, come next month. Uh, the, the question really um, hangs in the balance of, you know, what happens in Georgia? Uh, there's that runoff election for both Georgia seats that will determine uh, the, the control of the Senate. Um, and that will really sort of be a deciding factor in terms of, you know, what can get done legislatively, uh, what sort of political appointees um, uh, are able to, to pass uh, the Senate and, and, and join Biden's administration. So there's a lot of, of question mark about, you know, not only you know what can be done politically, but also what the state of the economy and the virus and the vaccine will be and what the what the calls will be for in terms of what parts of the economy need boosting at that point. So, Laura, you've covered this Congress thing for a while. What do you make of the seemingly lack of coordination and cohesion between the White House, uh, their Republican colleagues, and then the Democratic Party? It just seemed like the the, the president really pulled the rung out from under uh, his own party. He he really did. You know, Congress is, is known for chaos, but even by Congress's standards, this was quite bizarre. Um, you, this created some really weird factions where you had Democrats, you know, when, when President Trump said, hey, you know, I want $2,000, they were like, great, we've been saying this for months. Let's take a vote on it. Mm-hmm. And Republicans were put in a very awkward position of, you know, having negotiated actually for a lower stimulus payment uh, rather than a, a higher one. Yeah, that, that definitely. When I saw that headline last week, I was on vacation. I was like, wait. What happened? What? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, usually you go away, nothing happens. You come back, everything's the same. Um, so w- what else is in this bill um, that we need to know about? I feel like we've glossed over kind of what's happening for the sectors that need to be bailed out again that are the ones actually rallying today. Yeah, so uh, there is a new round of PPP, that Paycheck Protection Program money, uh, to kind of go out to, to small businesses across the board. They're specifically targeted some money to, to very small businesses, minority-owned. Uh, there's a pot of money for uh, for stages, for, for live performance venues, which has lobbied hard, saying, hey, look, we've been closed for months and really unable to, to do anything. There's some additional airline aid. Um, and there's also, very importantly, another round of unemployment benefits, these uh, sort of enhanced federal benefits to, to help people who are who are out of work and, and kind of keep them afloat uh, for, for the coming months. So on the PPP side, Laura, there was some concern and some criticism last time that it didn't really get to the small and mid-sized businesses that really needed it. For example, if he didn't have a, a relationship with a bank, uh, it was very, very difficult to get the funds. Is there any modification to the plan this time as far as we can tell? 
There's there's several things that they did, um, and and advocates who are pushing for those changes are hopeful that that small you know those very small businesses will be able to access the funds. They changed the fee um, incentive structures for the banks who are actually making these loans, processing these loans, so that they wouldn't necessarily benefit or, or you know be incentivized to take only big loans and not take small loans. There's a certain part of the money that's earmarked for these very small loans, um, and they've also just made the process a lot easier for the businesses applying. There is some concern that there were you know just there is some reputational risk. Uh, in, with the program, if people have heard that it's complicated, that it's hard, that the rules change, and some businesses may be scared, uh, though there's a lot of um, effort sort of in the small business community development world trying to get businesses who are, who are hurting to go ahead and apply for this money. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it clarifying what's coming out of Washington here in terms of that fiscal stimulus. Laura Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. And there's a lot of moving parts there, Alex, but I guess this is a good first step. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have to just wait and see what uh, the Biden administration, what strategy they want to take in terms of fiscal stimulus. Presumably, uh, they're going to want to be more aggressive here. But I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens, uh, certainly in Washington, D.C., to make it the makeup of Congress. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Let's take some time and talk about the uh, global oil business. When you think about uh, all the commodities out there that have been, you know, swinging around during this pandemic on news uh, as it relates to the pandemic metrics, as it relates to vaccines, crude oil has been one of the most actives. And clearly it's a bellwether and it reflects on investors' belief about when this economy will begin to open. Uh, let's get the latest. We can do that with Professor Brenda Schaefer. She's, from the, she's a research faculty member at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, also a fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. She joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Professor Schaefer, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, we've seen oil kind of rally up to the high 40s here in terms of WTI, but it really seems to be driven by demand or the perceptions of demand going forward as opposed to supply a little bit. We know it's a commodity and it's a demand supply issue, but it just feels like it's being driven by demand. How do you view the global oil markets right here? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, we're back up to um, the pre-COVID, you know, oil oil price rate, you know, back up to the, the rates of, uh, of March. Um, so it's definitely a confidence in the direction of the, where the general economic trends are going. Um, but I think that there's two big picture trends that are going to emerge post-COVID, and it's pretty clear to anyone, you know, trading in oil. Um, one is that we're not going back to the same rates of public transportation. So even after the vaccine, after people return to work, um, they're not going to return to the same rates of use of public transport transportation. That, that fear will probably linger for a long time. And the second is the use of plastic. So if we would almost already factored in 2018, 2019, sort of a, a general global decline in demand for plastics um, with, you know, different environmental goals, um, you know, and, and, and uh, commercial goals, um, it's clear that plastic, so demand will be high and, and plastics, you know, the, the main is, is a sector that uses a lot of oil t- uh, to produce it. So these are two things that won't change that, you know, dependent, you know, regardless of what happens going forward with the pandemic, with the, the economy, uh, we're not going to see a return to the same levels of public transportation or, or a decline in, in demand for plastics. Can other things offset that? So uh, diesel, for example, or other petrochem products? 
Um, yes, I think the specifics, you know, for plastics that, you know, right now with current technologies, um, I, I don't think we'll see, a, you know, a, a big a big change in that trend. But there are on the uh, supply side a couple uh, more short-term things that could affect the market. Um, one, we have OPEC Plus meeting again in January and reevaluating their uh, strategy. It uh, looks like Russia actually wants to up uh, production, which would mean, um, you know, downward pressure on the price. Um, and this is in order to preempt U.S. shale from uh, recovering and, you know, and coming back in in a big way to the market. And then a second big question mark is that uh, um, if the incoming Biden administration will quickly uh, go back to an agreement with Iran, will allow more Iranian oil into the market, how quick uh, Iran manages to up its production if that takes place. So on the supply side, there could be more oil coming into the market um, in early 2021 that, that would affect the price. Um, but those bigger issues on the demand side probably won't, won't be moved. So, Professor, do you think we've – some people, are, you know, raised the issue, you know, prior to the pandemic that perhaps uh, the world had seen peak oil. What is your view there? Um, as my students know over the years, I don't, I don't believe in peak anything when it okay. comes to oil. So, so, so uh, you know, I, I mean, basically having a, a finite of anything, a fi- whether it's finite supply or finite uh, demand, I, I, I think it's very, uh, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to, to conceive of that. So it used to be we were talking about peak oil, we meant about, you know, peak supplies. And that was completely debunked. You know, we, we were, we got, to, you know, we were, we were awash in oil, you know, from, from, from 2014 to, to, to about now, um, uh, so, so debunked that. And then, it, then we had to have a new peak theory, which was peak demand. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I see it doesn't as much, you know, we often talk about energy transition, energy transformation as if it's a fact. Sure, many things are happening, but um, still in the transportation sector, um, especially with this new uh, lingering fear of public transportation. I think we're, we're far away from, uh, you know, decoupling uh, our activities from oil in the transportation sector. I mean, totally right on. I mean, look at like SUV sales are bananas. Uh, I mean, <laughs> EVs are great. Okay, you're going to have more um, subsidies. You're going to push them out, etc. Maybe you'll have some charging stations, but people just really want to buy SUVs. Um, just to, and we'll get to the specific of the energy plan um, that was passed uh, in a moment. But I mean, does gasoline have a have a real life here, real future? Um, you know, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you again, if they, if it's not even. I agree with your point about as, um, larger cars, but we're even seeing sort of a revival of the used cars and uh, mm, uh, the industry of you know car parts and and repairs because the same people that were riding the bus and the metro, um, they might not be buying a new you know a new car. So, so it's really a renaissance of those industries um, as well. And uh, uh, yes, and. and and still not, you know, people can't afford, uh, uh, the same kind of people that are moving from public transportation to, to a private vehicle, um, you know, probably can't afford electric cars regardless of the subsidy. And then quickly, uh, are we going to see a point where we don't have enough oil for the demand that we're going to meet over the next two years or three years? Well, we will have enough oil, but it might come at a price. And that's why um, there, there is a big chance that, you know, what has happened over the past uh, the past year and, and even more or less over the past uh, six years when there's been you know, a lot, many periods of uh, low oil prices, that there haven't been a lot of um, 
there haven't been a lot of investments investments in new oil. So so um, now that demand is going up, there isn't necessarily new production there to meet the demand. So what will happen? You know, prices will go up. A, a big question mark is how fast U.S. Uh, shale production will uh, will reappear because it, it 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 basically you know it has an, the ability uh, relatively to swing uh, back faster than a lot of other places. Um, and that could be a modifying impact on on um, on the global oil price, but you know it's not clear how much investor appetite uh, th- there right. is uh, to go back to the shale because so, so most more people have lost money on that than than gain. Professor, want to continue discussion and, and, and kind of go to the fact that we are going to have a new uh, administration in the White House uh, in a little more than three weeks. What does that mean for the U.S. energy policy? Do you believe? What have you heard from the Biden campaign, and, and maybe what we know about his past policymaking? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I think that the, the the ability of the federal government in general to uh, influence some, um, at least U.S. energy production, is is limited relatively to the states. You know, so we, so we debated a lot, we talk about it a lot, but. But in the end of the day, you know, most of the regulation of uh, U.S. energy production is by, you know, by the state structure. So, um, you know, clearly there's going to be on the formal level, um, you know, more of a em- emphasis on climate policy um, and, uh, you know, return to the Par- Paris Agreement. But I think on, you know, day-to-day things that affect uh, U.S. oil production and oil and gas production, uh, we might not see any, any uh, uh, dramatic uh, changes. And it is quite interesting that, under the Trump administration, even though there wasn't, you know, a formal policy of, uh, you know, promoting climate aversion or pr- promoting renewable energy, renewable energy uh, production continued to grow uh, significantly, mm-hmm. you know, under to the Trump administration, um, U.S. emissions relative to the economic growth continued to decline. Um, so, you know, so really the, be- the you know, the most important signal is actually if, if, if there are policies that are both um, economic, it doesn't really matter um, or it doesn't matter significantly what the, the political framework is. And I think you know, the best well, example is um, how the switching in the United States of the electricity production from natural gas to coal. So this is, you know, without any policy, simply because natural gas has been cheaper in most markets, um, power produ- producers have decided to go from, you know, gas to, to from coal to gas, and this lowered U.S. emissions, as low as U.S. air pollution, you know, regardless of government policies. Well, and then and to that point, I mean, even in the budget that um, is said to be passed today, there was like $23 billion that was for solar and wind, even though it's a Trump administration, also for carbon capture, etc. And I think that something that's nuanced here is that if you get a lot of money going into this technology like carbon capture or direct air capture, where you're basically just sucking carbon out of the air um, and then having to recycle it, that's actually an oil story. Like oil companies are the ones that are actually spending to do that because in part they have the infrastructure. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think it's a great point that how much, uh, you know, many things, you know, because of Congress's support, you know, are, are, are not contingent on, you know, who happens to, to occupy the, the, the White House. Um, but also, I think, you know, that sometimes we lump all together um, all fossil fuels as if, you know, oil, natural gas and coal are the same thing. And I think that we're already seeing sort of maybe a backtracking in, in Europe on this, because why has the U.S. been so successful in lowering air pollution, lowering carbon emissions? It is this, this easy and, you know, cheap transference from use of coal to natural gas. 
Um, and Europe didn't adopt the same policies. They tried to sort of skip the fossil fuels, uh, you know, skip natural gas and go, uh, you know, directly into renewables as the way to lower emissions. And, and they have not, been, despite all their, you know, being part of the Paris Agreement, all the global agreements, having all the rhetoric, they have not been as successful as the United States in lowering pollution and, and, and lowering uh, car- carbon emissions. So um, I think we might be seeing a rethinking of uh, natural gas that, that really, um, even though it's a fossil fuel, it does um, has such a lower uh, climate impact and, and uh, pollution impact than, than the alternative fossil fuels. So, Professor, presumably under a Biden administration, the relationship, economic relationship between the U.S. and China will improve uh, and perhaps, you know, we'll see uh, trade levels pick up. H- how does that, how does energy fit in to the U.S.-China relationship? Yeah, well, I think it's pretty, still early to call, um, you know, how the U.S.-China relationship is going to change. I think that um, due to the pandemic and, and, you know, and seeing the vulnerability of U.S. supply lines on, you know, on critical, um, on, on critical products, you know, being abroad, I think there's something that there is bipartisan consensus that, um, you know, the sort of U.S., dependence on China needs to change. So it's, it's not really clear, I think, exactly how, um, you know, how, how if, if trade relations will go back to the sort of Obama era t- type of frameworks or, or, or if we're really in a sort of a, a new a new stage. Um, but, but clearly, sure, energy, you know, the U.S. Um, natural gas exports are often, you know, touted as something that helps U.S. allies um, you know, improve their energy security, but the, you know, some of the biggest consumers of, of U.S. energy exports are, you know, actually China and, and uh, um, or, or not necessarily countries that are, you know, have energy uh, dependence or security supply issues. So, um, yeah, clearly for, for the case of natural gas, um, the trade policies really matter. Um, do you expect this to be quick in the U.S. in a way that they can catch up to Europe at all? Um, in terms of the climate policy? In terms of real money going to real places. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I look more on the global aspects of, uh, of energy, but I think, you know, we should be really result-driven versus process. So, again, if you take something like uh, uh, mm. the Paris Accords, clearly the Biden administration will go clearly back to the, to the Accords, but that won't necessarily change... Um, you know, much in the United States because, again, the U.S. has been doing right. a lot, the market itself, to, to reduce emissions and reduce pollution. Uh, Professor Brenda Schaefer, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Research faculty member at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate, also a fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., giving us the latest geopolitical impact for global energy. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Well, when you have markets at or near all-time highs as we do right now, you think about where we were back in March. It's just an extraordinary turnaround. But when you do get markets there, what you also get is a lot of companies tapping the initial public market offering market, either by a direct IPO, where now we've got SPACs and direct listings, to get a sense of kind of how 2020 played out and maybe how 2021 is going to look at this point. Christian Monafo, Chief Investment Officer of Liberty Street Advisors, also Portfolio Manager of SharePost 100 Fund. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Christian, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us just a, a look back on 2020. It seemed like we had some really, really big deals. Yes, good afternoon. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, it was certainly an active year uh, in any stretch of the imagination. You know, IPOs, you know, the traditional IPO structure, at least, you know, we've raised somewhere in the neighborhood of about $80 billion, which is almost 2x yep. up from last year. Um, SPACs were over $80 billion, wow. all coming off of $13 billion last year. Direct listings, you know, as we know, have been coming more popular. So, yeah, it's certainly been an interesting time for, you know, private late-stage innovation companies, you know, and it's worth just understanding that, you know, the the structure that these companies are coming from is essentially structurally illiquid, right? The private markets are in a structurally illiquid asset class, and over the last couple of decades, what we've seen is that these private companies continue staying private for longer. And so as a result of that, you have these companies that are growing into, you know, much larger operating businesses. Mm -hmm. And at the time that they go public um, or are attracting, you know, also uh, potential acquisition oriented um, uh, sponsor capital, they're just much larger businesses than what we saw in the past when Mm -hmm. we think of companies like Microsoft and Oracle and, and those types of companies when they went public. These companies are staying private for much longer they're scaling into much larger businesses, and we're seeing a lot of demand for this high-growth innovation. So I'm going to try and tie this conversation into something that we saw in the markets overnight, and that was the big sell-off we've seen over the last two days over in Asia, JD.com, Alibaba, etc. All of that really because China's cracking down on Ant, which was supposed to go public, would have been the biggest uh, IPO ever, and then now they're cracking down. And, you know, we're seeing something somewhat similar in the U.S., Obviously, these are very different circumstances, but the idea that these companies are too big, they're doing too many things. Um, what are you noticing in the private market with mid-sized companies? Are they getting that warning? Are they wanting to stay smaller? Yeah, no, I think it's a very good question. You know, I think we've been fortunate that we haven't seen this play out at scale as of yet. I mean, we saw it clearly, you know, a debacle last year with, with WeWork. And there's obviously some other ones out there. You look, let's face it. We work fears like a million years ago, by the way, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. We what? Yeah, it does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it sure does. Except for those who invested into it, I'm sure. That's true. Good point. Yeah, but I think, look, I think the the reality is, uh, from a mainstream standpoint, a lot of the venture capitalists and growth equity investors who back these companies are very much focused on not just, you know, executing on the operational plans of the core company, but also making sure that they're not overexposing themselves because they've seen what happens. You know, there's been so much capital that's flown into these markets over the last decade alone. You know, somewhere in the order of $6 trillion has come into the private markets, of which over a trillion has been allocated just for venture. And so when you can raise that kind of money, it's not difficult to get excited about trying to mm-hmm. grow into different areas. 
But I think what a lot of it comes down to is governance and discipline at the board level to make sure that the company is staying focused on its core competencies and not stretching itself. So, Christian, what's your outlook for 2021? I guess just the broad market outlook is, okay, vaccines are coming. The worst, you know, you know, once we get past the next couple of months, we'll be behind us and we can look forward to maybe in the second half of the year, maybe even beginning in the second quarter, the economy beginning to grow again. What do you think about the capital raising and the IPO and the going public market in 2021? Sure. So, look, I think in any market cycle, from our experience and from our perspective, we believe that there's always going to be strong public market interest and demand for innovative, differentiated companies that are generating substantial growth and market penetration, and that also can turn a profit, right? Because we saw that with some of the companies we're mentioning, even though they have these hyper-growth type uh, trajectories, they're unable to demonstrate profitability, or at least a pass to that. So it's our view that in any market cycle, there's going to continue to be strong demand for these types of companies you know, that can uh, show the ability to generate that, that profit. And again, there's just been a substantial supply buildup of many of these late-stage companies. And so you know, when we look at 2021, you know, we look at our own portfolio, we see activity that's happening. You know, we believe that 2021 should continue to be a very active year for the late-stage private company space. What we saw this year clearly was an acceleration of technology adoption across the board. Right. Uh, these not are, are not only technologies that are going to be disruptive, but they're also going to be complementary. And so, you know, we think there's a lot of capital out there that's chasing growth, that's chasing innovation. We think that it's going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future. Hmm. Is it all going to be in tech startups? Well, it depends on what your definition of startup is, right? And Fair so, you know, when you, have, when you have companies that are generating, you know, hundreds of millions to billions in revenue, you know, those are not startups from the, the, from the traditional sense. And that's what many of these companies are. Hmm. Um, but look, not all these companies are going to be success, success stories. And not all of these companies are also going to achieve a public market currency. You know, we have to remember that there's hundreds of billions in cash sitting on the balance sheets of the mega tech companies alone that are looking for ways to augment their own reach and capabilities. You know, and so a lot of these companies will also get acquired. Um, but yes, to your point, there, there are certainly not going to be all success stories. Hey, Christian, thanks so much for joining it. We appreciate it uh, so much. Very interesting talking tech investing and just growth investing in general. Christian Manafo, he is the chief investment officer for Liberty Street Advisors, also portfolio manager of Shares Post 100 Fund, joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We'll